You're listening to CISD on SOAS Radio. So, just a couple of house rules. Um, first of all, I've got to anonymise some of what I'm talking about. Um, I'm happy to tell you which industries I was in, but I can't give you details that are not in the public eye. You're being That's absolutely fine. That's no problem. If you have questions about something that's already in the public domain and I know about it, I can give you a flavour, but I can't tell you anything that's not publicly available. Um, The other thing is any opinion I give you is my opinion. I'm not talking from the perspective of any of the companies I've worked for or representing anybody. This is all me. Um, I'm also not representing SOAS. It really just is my opinion. And you'll find I kind of go in different directions to what I think about things. So... To start with, i tell you how I ended up going from SERS to what I do at the moment. So I was here from 2004 to 2008, and I did the law undergraduate programme. Um, at the end of that, it turned out I had a bit of an interest in international humanitarian law. In fact, I was studying under Dr. Gina Heathcote, who now convenes the Centre for Gender Studies. So she was my tutor and one of my big inspirations here. And she suggested, you know, why don't you think about doing a master's? So I went off to the University of Hong Kong, where I did a master's in law and focused on international humanitarian law. And my interest was laws of war and conflict regions. The dream was to go off and do something to do with a conflict region. When I came back to London, um, law is a law's a bit of a beast at times. It does take over your life. And everyone goes off and does the same thing. They go to law school, go off and become a solicitor, go and work for a big law firm. And that's just not what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to go and join the army legal service and go and work with people figuring out when we can blow stuff up or not. I kid you not, that is what they do. Um, So I went to law school, I was working throughout it and really trying to figure out how am I going to do this. I've looked at joining the territorial army and you can join under different factions. So I was looking at doing intelligence work for them. And then at the point of graduating, um, something happened that just made me pause and go off on a very different trajectory, which I will come back to in a few minutes so first of all corporate compliance if I say that does anyone know what I'm talking about go on give, give, give it your best shot go on go on go on go on throw words at me that come to mind okay law anything else if I say bribery scandals anything Well, hey, I'm going to talk about Siemens. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. So in the late 1990s and early 2000s, there were a number of bribery scandals. So, for example, Siemens, they were fined. What are we? $1.6 billion for they were bribing a number of um, officials in different countries in order to secure contracts for building work and electronics. We had companies like Baker Hughes, who are an American oil and gas company. They were fined $44 million in penalties. They had been passing bribes over in Russia, Kazakhstan, and a few others. Um, On an absolute random note, I happen to have worked with one of the gentlemen who was passing the bribes, not at Baker Hughes, somewhere else, just make this very clear. And um, I did actually get the opportunity in private to say to him, what was going on? You know, you know you can't be passing over bags full of cash. This is not appropriate. Um, And... It's really interesting how it's seen internally. You're not passing over bags of cash. You are passing over a facilitation payment or you're passing over a fee to a management company to help arrange an introduction. These payments are all recorded. They go through um, the payroll process. It's not seen, well, at the time, let me make this clear, it was not seen as a bribe. So as far as he was concerned, he 
hadn't done anything wrong. It was completely sanctioned by the company. Everyone knew this. And in fact, the company had already been told off a few years earlier by the um, Department of Justice in America. So, so what? Everybody does it. If you want to win contracts in certain parts of the world, that's just the cost of doing business. Um, some of you might know about Total, the French oil and gas company. They got formed in 2013 for $398 million. Similarly, they were passing sweeteners or encouragements to different people in different government departments where they were trying to win contracts in order to secure their contracts. And again, cost of doing business, this is all completely normal. And then some of you might also know of Alcatel, the phone company, 2010, they got a fine of $137 million for similarly in Latin America, passing over money to certain officials to make sure their contracts were the ones that were awarded. So why is this the cost of doing business? What is it about bribery that just makes things happen? Some of it's cultural, unfortunately so. Some of it, that is just how things are done. When you hear things like tea money, where you know if you're going down a road in a certain place and you've got to hand over a little something to the police officer just to let you go on your way. I'm part Jamaican and we, if we're going to the market, we have a brata. And it literally means you and the woman at the market haggle over your mangoes and at the end you give her a price and she gives you a little sweetener on top. It's just normal. It's, it is what it is. When it becomes a problem is when you're going to, for want of better description here, and please feel free to give me a different term from it, less developed countries where that bribery then stops the money that really should be going to the people who need it, should be going into services, etc., it ends up being sidelined into, let's face it, sometimes overinflated projects that just don't need to happen. You know, if you're paying Siemens or whoever to build a road and they've given you a sweetening, you're paying them more than the contract's worth, that could be going to a local business. That money could be going into hospitals or schools. And it's estimated at the moment that the amount that the um, economy in the world loses in bribery every year is a trillion dollars, which is, it's outrageous. Um, and it's really not doing anyone any good. So there have historically been certain bribery laws. People tend to know about the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act in the United States. That came in in, the ni in 1977. Now, at the time, that was seen as really far-reaching. It wasn't. Yes, it was an offence for you to bribe in the US, not necessarily in foreign territories. And it's also not an offence for you to pay out facilitation payments. There were rules about how you manage that. So your facilitation payment is your... I don't know, say you go to your visa office and you've paid for your visa. Gentleman behind the counter says, well, you know what? I can get this done for you today if you want to slip me $50. That's a facilitation payment. And it's a bribe. Yeah, of course. How is that different than, you know, the ins institutional system we have here, or at least I'm from Canada, but I assume the same thing here, where you, know, you want to go get your, I don't know, uh, police check or whatever. If you want it done in three days, it's this price. If you want it done in a week, it's this price. If you want it done in two weeks, it's this price. It's the exact same thing. They're not actually going to, it doesn't take them two weeks to do it. It means they're going to put it on the bottom of the pile and look at it in two weeks and it'll only take them 10 minutes to do it. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, that's a risk you run if you pay a facilitation payment. It might get done, it might not get done, but you are of the intent that you are inducing that person to improperly perform a function and put your visa or your police check to the top of the pile. That's your problem. And in fact, um, as we go through this, you'll find that at the time, companies who were regularly engaged in this practice would have slush funds. That was just the cost of doing business. Yeah, we'll set aside 100 million to pay off whoever it is. That's just, that's just normal. 
So the main ways in which bribery tends to happen, at, uh, well, happened at the time, it's your facilitation payments, it's your payments to third-party agents. Oh, they're brilliant. There's always a third-party agent. He's always in the Cayman Islands somewhere. There's some numbered account, maybe a nice car going somewhere. And it's always described on the invoice as management fee. No, it isn't, especially if it's going to the Cayman Islands. It's things like you take someone out for a ridiculously expensive dinner and say, oh, by the way, I know you want to be a patron of something or I know you've been looking at this year's latest model of this car. Oh, don't worry, have one. Don't worry about it. That's fine. So this uh, negotiation in our contract, are you going to get rid of the other bidders? Here, have another car. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. That was what was happening. And unfortunately, a number of companies were found out and the UK finally decided it needed to do something. So we got the 2010 UK Bribery Act. And don't worry, this is going to be the last legal section. I just need to give you a bit of background, then we get to the fun stuff. So stay with me on this one. So the UK Bribery Act came in in 2010, and it covered certain things. First of all, it is a criminal offence to bribe somebody. It is an offence to be bribed. And it's also a criminal offence to prevent bribery in a commercial organisation. They have a very specific definition of bribery, which I never remember off the top of my head, so if you don't mind, I will just read it out. It is the promise or offer to give financial or other advantage with the intent to induce that person to improperly perform a relevant function. That is really lengthy. So, quite simply, if I were applying to SOAS and I wanted to make sure that my application got done first, if I decided to go down to the front office and give them an extra £100 or something to process my Um, application faster I've just bribed them if I went down there and said I'm thinking about giving you a hundred pounds to process my application that is bribery the intent was there don't need to actually have passed over anything if I were real life case if I were a certain bank and I were looking to have a certain Middle Eastern client fund as one of my accounts And I went over to that fund and said, hey, by the way, we've got some really highly sought after internships um, here in our head office in New York, and we'll pay for your kids to do them. All expenses, we'll pay for their flat, we'll pay for their car, we'll give them a salary, even though they have no qualifications relevant to this role. That's a bribe. doesn't have to be money. It's something that gives you an advantage. And that's a real one, by the way. That was JP Morgan, and they got fined um, a ridiculous amount of money for doing this. They'd... um, I think it was a Qatari fund they were trying to induce to be clients of theirs. So they flew these people, kids, kids over to New York at the expense of candidates who actually did their six month long application process for their internship program. And these kids were useless, by the way. In fact, um, the reason this came to light is someone internally got fed up because they did nothing and blew the whistle to the Department of Justice and they were fined for it and probably lost the business as well. But it's JP Morgan. They probably don't care because they make that kind of money. Um, we'll get to this as well, because this is one of my bugbears about the fines in relation to what some of these companies are actually making. So that is the UK Bribery Act. And there are six principles that one has to have in one's company, which will hopefully prevent bribery. So you've got to have appropriate procedures. You've got to have top level commitment. So that's your big boss at the top saying we do not like bribery. We will not tolerate this. You have your risk assessment where you figure out which countries are most risky to work with or which companies are most risky to work with. You've got your due diligence, which is when you're looking at working with people, you do background checks on them, which I'll come to later. You've got your communications and your training. And then last but not least, you've got your monitoring and your review. And this is meant to help stamp things out. So 
Typical things that I work on um, in day-to-day life are doing the training. I will look at gifts and hospitality. I will do risk assessments. If we're going to do a joint venture with another company, then I will do background checks on that company and find out interesting stuff about them. Just as a side note, if you ever want to know anything about anybody, Facebook is fantastic. I love that thing. I mean, people put stuff on Facebook and think, we're not going to see it. You know, and if you tell me that you are a lowly official and, you know, you're just on a civil service salary... Then I go onto Facebook and see that your daughter's just had some stupidly lavish wedding with gold and elephants and all sorts. You're getting some money from somewhere. Don't put it on Facebook, but never mind. Um, When it comes to things like doing reviews, it's actually going around and checking that people are doing what they're supposed to do. So I audit people. I will actually turn up in their office and say, show me. Show me your account. Show me where this money's gone. What's this payment about? And you have to tell me, because would you rather tell me? Would you rather tell the police? think you'd rather tell me um ironically i am sort of known as the internal police officer which isn't always a good thing so there's a bit of a balance to you know we understand there's a cost to doing business and we want you to be successful versus you need to be following the law because we don't need that kind of publicity and other things fines etc which i'll go into so we've done the legal bit just keep all that in the background i promise we're not going to do any more of that so let's go on to back to where i came into things so Here I am at this point, Um, actually, I'm going to do one more bit on compliance. I haven't told you about the regulatory body. So um, 2010, once this act came out, there was this massive explosion. Every company needed a compliance officer because previously there was nobody in the company who would say this payment is wrong or how we're doing business is wrong. So out of nowhere, it tended to be people who were either previously accountants, in particularly auditors, or it was lawyers. And... What you've got to remember is at the time when this act came out, there was no guidance. It was new, there had been no offences under it, nobody really knew what to do. So people were playing it by ear. Some people played it very safe, some people played it really close to the wind, which, again, we'll see a bit more of. And we do have an investigatory body here, which is the Serious Fraud Office. They're down in Trafalgar Square in the basement underneath Canada House, if any of you are familiar with it. Don't know why they chose that location, but there they are headed up by David Green QC, so an ex-barrister. And people have mixed feelings about them. First of all, they're very unique. They investigate and prosecute, which is pretty unusual. They have a not amazing budget for what they're doing, and they are tasked with going after high-level bribery cases and foreign corruption. They have a mixed success rate. We'll come back to their success rate a little later. Um... Some of their current investigations, and I feel like I might stoke a little bit of controversy here, but let's see what you think. Um, Anyone aware of what's happening with Barclays Bank and Qatar? That's fine. So, round about the time of the global financial crisis, Barclays Bank realised, look, we're caught up in this too. We've been exposed to loads of risk. We need some capital to shore up our books. So they went to Qatar, because Qatar has lots of money. Well, had lots of money, still does. I'm I'm not even going to touch that one. So they go to Qatar. Qatar's got lots of money. And they're trying to persuade Qatar to give them, I think it was something like $6 billion, something ridiculous, to shore up their own finances so they didn't collapse. Why is Qatar going to do that? What, what, in, what return on investment are they going to get? So allegedly, there were a number of bribes going back and forth. We're talking money, we're talking holidays, lavish gifts. Qatar gave them the money. Not a lot of people realise this. Barclays very nearly went under during the financial crisis. They were so close, Qatar gave them the money. And that's what stopped them becoming nationalised and being just in the state that a number of other banks are in. This has now come to light. 
Serious World Office are investigating them as we speak. And that's politically sensitive, very politically sensitive. Because what you've now got is a UK government department investigating a deal between a UK bank and Qatar. And if you know anything about our relationship as a country with Qatar, it's problematic. We'll stay out of that one. Um, Rolls-Royce, they've been in the news recently. They recently settled a deferred prosecution agreement. So I'm going to pause on that for a second. Um, And again, I'm I'm actually interested to know people's thoughts on um, how our justice system works. It's very, uh, very two sides to everything. So let's say you've got a really big fraud case and you've spent... I don't know, 10 million UK pounds of taxpayers' money investigating it. Are you going to carry on and take them to court? Or if they hold their hands up and say, look, we did it, we'll pay a fine, what are you going to do? Let them off. They paid the fine. Why? Easier. Going to court costs money. Costs a lot of money. Like used to be a barrister, it costs money. Why are you going to drag them through a criminal justice system when they might not actually be found guilty because you know they're entitled to defence in front of the law like everybody else? What's the point? You're going to potentially take the money from them and tell them, don't do it again. So we have this slew of things called deferred prosecution agreements. And what that means is the company comes in and says, look, we're not admitting we did it. We're not saying we didn't do it. But here's some money in lieu of the fact that we may or may not have done something wrong. And we're going to give you an undertaking that we're not going to do it again within three years. And you can come in and audit us. And we're going to do our own internal investigation. That's it. Tesco, anybody? Anyone familiar with the Tesco scandal recently? Oh, yes, of course, please. Uh, how is that not bribery? Just like Alex was mentioning too. Like, how is that not a form of bribery as well? It's a good it's question. An institutionalized form, right? It's a good question. But why should they be spending more of the UK taxpayers' money on something that they might lose and get no recourse from it altogether? Right, but I mean, it's still the, like, maybe we did, maybe we didn't, but we'll keep it, well, you know, we're not saying either way. It's all the under the road type of stuff. So not to, um, not to pick on you personally, but uh, we did steal these deferred prosecution agreements from the Americans. <laughs> So uh, uh, do apologise. No, I, mean, I represent all of You're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. And it's my opinion that the motive behind this is more to do with cost than it is to do with what's morally correct. The reality is the fines that come back, or part of it goes back to the UK government for what they've spent on having to prosecute, and it tends to be distributed to good causes, so to people affected by the proceeds of the bribery. It's not just we sit on this money and that's the end of it. So, Tesco, anybody? I don't know if anyone here shops at Tesco. There we are. So, a couple of years ago, it came to light that Tesco had been grossly overstating its profits by £263 million. And the ruse that they used was actually really smart. I have to give them so much credit because it takes a really creative mind to think about this. What they were doing is instead of saying to their shareholders, this is what we made and that's it, they were including the figures of future billings, which will happen in six months, might happen in 12 months, but they were including it in their profits right now. Overstated by 263 million pounds. And this came to light. 
say the serious fraud office decided they were going to investigate. Now, Tesco, at the time, and um, I have a bit of personal involvement, I didn't work for them, but knew their people decently enough. They had to fire most of their internal auditors. They also fired their external auditor. Um, oh gosh, I feel, like, I feel it was KPMG. It was one of the big four, but um, they had to fire them because effectively this auditor had been auditing their books for the last number of years, saying, yeah, clean bill of health, everything's fine. By the way, we offer consultancy services as well. Like, you know, do you fancy paying us for doing some of that work? Yeah, sure, why not? And suddenly we've got a conflict here because I'm effectively marking your homework and saying it's all fine and you're paying me extra in other services and this is not necessarily a good thing. Um, at one point it was looking like KPMG or whichever one it was might be investigated too. It didn't happen. They're the big four. It never does. My opinion, not anyone else's. Um, so the deferred prosecution agreement was £235 million and that was earlier on this year. So Tesco have similarly said, well, we didn't do it, but we did do it, but here's some money and we're not going to do it again. And in fairness to them, they have uh, lost a significant amount of money. I don't know if you know that they've recently announced they're cutting a quarter of their workforce in their headquarters in Hatfield. So, you know, you've got to remember there's a human cost to this too. Because it's not just a matter of, oh, we've paid the money and that's the end of it. Like a bribe, as the lady at the back mentioned, they've had to cut staff because they can't afford to continue paying them. So it's, it's not an easy one. One that consistently comes up is GPT Special Project Management. So if I say bribery in Saudi Arabia, I can see one gentleman nodding. Yep, go ahead, tell us. Prince Bandar in the bushes? UK bribery I'm thinking of, but not from... BAE, is that it? Oh, good old friends, BAE. Now, once again, this is going to be my opinion. I have not worked for BAE. I don't know what was going on, but um, it's, <laughs> it's funny how things come to light sometimes. So... The allegation is that for number of years, going back into the 70s, the UK's got this very special relationship with Saudi Arabia, and we have been supplying them with military equipment for donkey's years. The allegation is that as part of supplying them with this equipment, we have been bribing them. Now, when I say we, I'm talking about BAE. The line is about to get blurred in a moment. Um, how did this come to light? So, one of the gentlemen, I think his name was Ian Foxley, was working for GPT Special Project Management, which was a company sitting under the umbrella of BAE. He, so, yeah, sure. What is BAE? Oh, sorry. Um, British Aerospace Engineering, I think that's what they stand for. So they make, like, planes and military stuff and, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So international. Yes. yes. So Ian Foxley is working for GPT, and he sees a number of payments going off to third-party management companies in the Cayman Islands, in the Virgin Islands, so he questions them and says, well, hang on a minute, what are these payments about? Like, what, what's going on? Ian Foxy is then told to leave. He then goes to Dubai Airport and is literally chased out of Dubai by the security services working for BAE, flees the country, comes back here and says to the UK government, look, there was a load of bribery going on. I've actually taken some documents with me. Do something. The UK government says to him, well, yeah, of course, as the government, because it's potentially a government contract, because the government involved, we have our own internal whistleblowing policy, so you are protected if you are a whistleblower. You are a contractor. You don't actually work for us, so we can't protect you from anything. 
poor old Ian Foxley, I don't know where he is right now, but um, he has given accounts of fleeing Dubai and security being at the airport and him just about managing to escape with these documents, which is unbelievable. Now, where this gets complicated is, so it's BAE supplying stuff to the Saudi Arabians, but these are defence contracts. So the Ministry of Defence is involved. Don't know if any of you know about government procurement, but the government has to sign off on its procurement contracts, has to sign off on its payments. So technically speaking, who might have signed off on these payments to third-party management companies in the British Virgin Islands? Minister of Defence. David Cameron lobbied the Serious Fraud Office to stop this being public. It was a couple of years ago. He went to them and said, guys, you need to stop in the interests of national security. We have a long-standing special relationship with Saudi Arabia. We don't want this investigated. The Serious Fraud Office, in fairness to them, effectively stuck two fingers up and said, we're investigating. Tough. But it's all being done under the Official Secrets Act. I've actually met one of the investigators who could not say a word to us. Um, he did drop a couple of hints, but keep an eye out on that one because at some point there will be an announcement as to whether they're going to charge them or not. I don't think it's going to happen because we're talking billions of dollars, billions of pounds at stake here and our relationship with Saudi Arabia. So the lines do get blurred and as the lady mentioned at the back, it is, it's a difficult one. What do we do? Do we look at the interests of our personal national security, our national economy, or do we look at doing the right thing? Do we accept some of this as cultural? Do we accept some of this as the cost of doing business? Something I always question, what's the difference between that and, I don't know, KPMG taking me to see Wimbledon? What is the difference? They're still, well, they're not inducing me per se, but they're carrying on a normal business relationship. It's a difficult one. Each company sees it differently. So back to me now. So we've done all of the, the background to this. So end of law school, I'm debating, what am I going to do? Am I going to go off and join the army legal service? Am I going to go off and be a barrister? What, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Then an oil company approaches me and says, we need somebody who's legally qualified to come and do some compliance work for us, contract compliance. And on top of it, you know, if things go well, we'll actually send you off to go and work in Iraq. And that just changed everything. So with the army, you've got to wait a certain amount of years to be deployed. And with this, they were saying, yeah, we'll send you off now. That's absolutely fine. So off I go naively to work for this oil company, naively in the sense of this is me sort of in my early 20s and just still at that stage where you know absolutely nothing. Um, at 31, I still feel sometimes I know absolutely nothing, but we, we get there eventually. So off I go to go and work for this oil company. And they want somebody to look at their various contracts. Oil companies, yeah, whenever we hear about a bribery scandal, it tends to be an oil and gas company. Petroleum production is, hmm, yes, <laughs> it's um, fraught with difficulties because most of the time you're operating in regions where there is a cost of doing business. And if you don't want to pay that cost of doing business, your competitors will. So how do we, how do we act in the right way but still also be a viable business? So, I sat work, working within the procurement team. These are the guys who go out and buy the various pipelines and bits and pieces to get the oil out of the ground. And therein lies the problem. How do we know that these procurement people aren't accepting a Ferrari on the side to give a contract over to whoever? 
how do we know that there aren't bags of cash being passed? And I kid you not, one of the questions I did once get was, I've been approached at the airport and offered a ridiculous sum of money. What do I do? I'm standing there like, how much? And they tell me how much. And I'm like, are you willing to split it with me? They're like, no. Yeah, you need to say no. Come on, people. Really? You know, if you're going to come to me, you got to... I, I am joking, by the way. I've never accepted a bribe. But, you know, I try and make it humorous so people realise the stupidity of the question. It's, it's okay. What do you do, however, when this is historical? What do you do when you've got someone who's been in oil and gas for 40 years and that is just how things are done? We go back to our friend that I described earlier who was at Baker Hughes, who was the one making these payments. He's been in this for actually longer than 40 years. This is just how business is done. Why do we have to change that? Why should we be less competitive with the rest of the world? Just because the UK government's decided they don't like bribery. It's not a question I'm going to answer in this because I don't have an answer. It, you know, I'm employed to make sure we follow the rules. So just as a little aside, when they're preparing you to go off to Iraq, which is amazing. So this was um, not too long after the war had finished. And as I'm sure you may know, certain companies were over there like a shot. I'm not going to have another go at the Americans today because I think we've done enough. But look, it happened. British companies as well. So it's not just one country. We're over there very quickly and deciding to help with the rebuild of the country. I know someone might say take advantage. They were helping with the rebuild of the country. And in order to go over there, you have to do certain training before they let you get on the plane because you've got to remember that as well as it being a country, there's just been a war. So there's landmines still there. There's IEDs still there. There are people from various groups still operating. And this is back in 2012. We knew about ISIS then, just to throw that out there. And again, I... I can only give you my opinion, but I just think it's interesting. We knew about ISIS then, and they had no money, were really underfunded. They teach you about all the different groups, and ISIS were way at the bottom. And somehow now they're ridiculously well-funded, they are really organised, and I don't know how that's happened in five years, and I'll leave you all to think about that, but I'll just, yeah. it's We knew then, and they were at the bottom of the list of our threats. But they take you off, and you have to do hostile environment training. So if a bomb went off here, or if somebody decided to shoot through the window to try and kill one of you, while I'm not volunteering myself to save you, I probably am the most qualified person in this room to do something to prevent you dying. But if there is somebody more qualified, call them, because, you know, it's been a while. Um, So they take you off with these ex-army guys who are pretty big and pretty ex-army, and they teach you how to do all the drills. You've got to get out of armoured cars and run and all sorts, and you it's... It's a bit surreal. You're in the middle of the English countryside with a Kevlar vest on, like, what am I doing here? And then eventually when they send you over, and this is standard for all of the oil companies operating out there. So the oil fields are in the middle of nowhere, as they would be. So you've got the airport one side and the fields, middle of absolutely nowhere. So me being my naive self, (laughs) get up there and they put you on these very nice business class planes and you're like, yeah, this is fantastic, this is fantastic. You get to Basra Airport People are very friendly. It's, you know, it's it, what people say in the news and what's actually going on. Very different things, but that's, again, another thing. And then they come and get you in their armoured vehicle. They put the Kevlar vest on you. They put the helmets on you, and you start driving. After 10 minutes or so, the novelty wears off because you do realise, where am I going? There's nothing but sand for miles. There is nobody here, and suddenly you feel your own sense of vulnerability. It's terrifying you get over it in the end because you just think right I'm going to go do my job this is all exciting these guys have been doing it for years 
It's terrifying. Um, <laughs> but again, me with my naive self thought it was the best thing ever. And you literally go out to these fields and it's incredible because you've got these pipelines and you can see oil just everywhere and they um when the oil comes out of the ground they tend to have gas as well and they're flaring off the gas you can just see fires everywhere it's an environmental nightmare by the way but it's very pretty at night time when you're just surrounded by orange you're like wow this is all oil and petroleum and it's terrifying terrifyingly wasteful but that's more to do with the tech side of things and hopefully things will change and that's with all of the companies um there's also the cultural and political aspect. We were over there working with the Iraqi government and with a Chinese state-owned company. Let's just say that they're, in particular the Chinese, for whatever reason, culturally, their attitudes toward, towards certain ethical dilemmas were different to how they're perceived by the UK. So for example, it might be considered absolutely fine to use a certain chemical, Whereas us from the UK be saying, no, you, you really can't do that. We, we don't use asbestos around here. It's, it's, not, it's not safe. And there'd be that sort of dilemma of how do you communicate? How do we get some middle ground going so that we're still competitive and that we still retain these partners as friends because we need to have that competitive advantage? There's also the bits of work where you're chasing around some burly oil man around a rig. I'm not joking. I've chased men around rigs. It's ridiculous. Um, you're very high up and it's very unsafe. And you're trying to say to them, well, I know this contract was 20 years ago, but I need you to remember what you did. And some of them know exactly what they did and don't want to tell you, which is why you're running around a rig. It's really, really ridiculous. But something I absolutely loved about it was the cultural aspect in terms of getting to learn another language and getting to actually interact with other people and getting to understand more about a country that, let's face it, when you hear about Iraq in the news, you hear about Baghdad and you hear about stuff on fire. That's just not what I found over there. People were just normal people who had kids and wanted their kids to grow up well and wanted to come to work and were proud to come to work and were just so utterly open. And I do think personally that something I think is great about SOAS is the fact that there are so many of us, we are from so many places, and we all just need to listen to each other more because I think we all kind of want the same things. We want security and stability and to, to do well. But anyway, that's my little moral <laughs> bit over. Um, so the kind of issues that we faced were things to do with facilitation payments, to do with procurement. And I'll give you a worked example. I'll be interested to see what your opinion on this is. So if you go to the Iraqi visa office in London, it's in South Kensington, and you go and apply for a visa, it's $200, and they sort out your visa for you. It takes about a week. If you fly into Basra Airport, there's a big sign, and it says visas, and they'll process your visa for you. It's $202. Any problems with that? That's both dollars. You pay here in dollars, you pay there in dollars. Discourages getting a visa before you travel, I guess? Nope. Think about the numbers here. Why is it 200 here and 202 there? What's the two dollars for? Bakshish. <laughs> no, but seriously, what's it for? Facilitation payment. So even though there's a big sign over the little lounge where you go, and what's not clear about whether this is an actual government program whereby it's perfectly legal for you to pay extra and get your visa the same day, it literally is a sign, it's in chalk, and it says $202. 
So as a company, what do you now do? What do you now have to say to everyone who's flying? Have to get your visas before you go. What happens if there's an emergency and you need somebody who can fit a certain part there tomorrow and they haven't got time to get their visa? Then what? Can't go. It's back to my same thing. Like, there could, I don't know how the system is here in Canada. Literally, if I want a visa to go wherever, this is the embassy, mm -hmm. and there's different prices mm -hmm. for different things. So it's the same. It's not agreement. because you've got an embassy, which is government backed, and it clearly says on the website and in the different papers, this is how much it is. Here's your receipt, yeah. courtesy government of Canada. In Iraq, it was a chalkboard. How do we know where that two and where that extra two dollars per person is going? So if they gave you a receipt, does it make if they gave me a receipt and I could prove that this was a, an official scheme, absolutely. At the time, now it might have changed since, so I'm not trying to say this is still going on, at the time there was nothing. So you couldn't know as a company whether you're paying a facilitation payment or whether this is actually legitimate. So the company had to ban everyone from going overnight. You had to get your visa and that was the end of it because we can't be seen to be acting inappropriately, even if that's not necessarily the case. Okay, I'll give you another one. Typically, it's frowned upon giving people cash. I'm sure you can figure out why. Here's a big brown envelope with thousands of dollars. During the Second Iraqi War, when Saddam would run out of money, does anyone know what he'd do? Get bribes. Not quite. Not quite. Go to the bank and take it. Seriously, just drive up to the banks and take the money. So if you are a company now operating an oil field and you've got Iraqi employees... How are you going to pay them? Come. Or? <laughs> no, I don't know. Pay them in cash. But how do we then prove that's not a bribe? How do we do this? And I'm kidding you not, the companies used to, on paydays, drive armoured trucks around full of cash because you couldn't put it in the bank, so I'm just take it. So suddenly we've now got to put a process in place to show that this is a legitimate payment, here is our circumstantial reason, our evidence as to why we're doing this, and on payday, here's your cash. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, but these are the dilemmas that you have to face when you're on the ground, and it's very easy to sit and say, well, this is very black and white. It's not always very black and white, not at all. Um, aha, so another thing. We tend to do a lot of CSR projects, so corporate social responsibility. And we'll maybe, uh oh, go on. <laughs> no, I'm just, just listening to all of this. It's hard to believe in corporate social responsibility. <laughs> it exists. <laughs> <laughs> it does exist. So, one more I worked on, um, we were working in a particular country and decided we wanted to fund a hospital and build it from scratch and say, right, we're going to build it, get the equipment in, and make sure this hospital's there. How do you then? make payments to somebody who might be a government official and know that they're charging you what the actual going rate is? How do you know they're not marking it up? How do you know that they're not going to pass the work over to a brother-in-law or a father-in-law and say, oh, no, don't worry, I know this company, they're fine, we can get this done quickly, but you have to use them. Again, these are all the dilemmas that we had to deal with. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in the world is corrupt. Let's make this very, very clear. I do think that there are certain institutional reasons why corruption goes on. And until those institutional reasons are gone, you're going to have corruption. But we as a company have to deal with that, yeah? But if this is in many of these cases, the state has basically engineered it that way, so it's always linked to the government, 
how on earth are you supposed to avoid that? I mean, it just seems to me when I read all these things, it's literally impossible. That's why I love my job. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know that's not an answer, yeah. but <laughs> it is difficult. And a lot of the time you have to... There is no one-size-fits-all answer. You have to take it on a case-by-case -case example. And there are ways of getting round things. Getting receipts is a fantastic way of getting round things. Making sure there's a paper trail. That there are ways to do it. But there is no one-size-fits-all. And one thing can bring down everything else. But it works both ways. That's what I'd say as well. Some people are quite happy for this to continue because it's easy to pay your way out of a problem. It's not easy to sit and negotiate and build a relationship with somebody where you can just give them a bag of cash. So that's oil and gas. <laughs> and um, just on an absolute side note, there's also a lot of corporate espionage that goes on, which is even funnier, but that's not what I'm going to cover today. So having moved on from oil and gas, I then decided to go off to a media company. And people would say, you know, media, corruption, what? No, we, we don't hear about this. Phone hacking anybody? Um, anyway, I wasn't working for them, so that's, that's, uh, that's a whole separate issue. But the kind of corruption that you get in media, and it's industry-wide, it's not one particular company, it's very much in the news now, is things on rebates. So the way it typically works is I, as a media company, will go to... I don't want to say a Rupert Murdoch empire. Somebody, pick, 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 pick a media supplier for me, I don't know. Google, fine, we'll take Google. Oh, no, not Google, no, no, no they're even worse. <laughs> Let's, uh, Channel 4, we'll do with Channel 4, they're okay. So I'll go to Channel 4 and say, I want this much space for you from you for filling airtime with advertisements. And they'll say, okay, yeah, if you buy it in bulk, we'll give you this much discount. Oh, that's fantastic, I bought in bulk, why can't I have a discount? You then got a client who's paid you a certain amount for that airtime. What happens to the proceeds of the discount? Keep it. Yeah. Absolutely keep it. This was rife throughout the industry. This was absolutely the way the business was done until a few years ago when the companies, the clients decided they realised what was going on and realised they'd been missing out in millions of pounds worth of rebates. So a stop was put to it. And so one of the things that I was looking at was how do we ensure that these rebates are calculated properly? Now, this is where tech comes into things, because as we know, the tech industry at the moment is moving at the most rapid pace. It's absolutely unbelievable. They keep coming up with new stuff. And we get our good old friend, Programmatics. So, anyone familiar with Programmatics? Have any of you ever gone onto our website and there's an ad for Amazon, and then you've gone onto another website and the same ad for Amazon's there? There's your Programmatics. So, it literally is a piece of tech, a bit of cookie, that identifies you, but not you personally as in, you know, I'm Isla and I live in East London. It's just you're female, you're of this age, we think you'll be interested in this advert. And it follows you around the internet. Simple as that. So, if we've got a contract with a client and it says, okay, we're going to give you back all the rebates. We're going to give you back any discount that we get from buying bulk airtime from Channel 4. What happens to a discount that I get from Google for buying bulk ad space from them? Is it a rebate or not? My contract with my client is for airspace on the TV. Why am I going to give them back a discount that I get for programmatic? It's not part of the contract. The time this contract was drawn up, there was no programmatic. We couldn't do this on the internet. So do I legitimately get to keep that money? 
There's no right or wrong answer. There's, there's arguments on both sides. And it's a massive issue at the moment because a number of companies that had previously worked with media industries, media um, um, companies, like big ones, have said, but hang on a minute, we didn't ever contract for programmatic. It wasn't there. How do we work out if you're defrauding us or if we're doing this is a legitimate cost of business? That's just one area. And there are a few big stories in the news at the moment. But I promise you, next time you see programmatic, you're going to think of this talk and be like, hang on a minute, this is ridiculous. There is nothing to govern this. Another big thing is, again, unfortunately, bribery. If I am working in Russia and the state-owned media is that state-owned and there is no one else to contract with and they expect a certain sweetener for being able to buy out space, what do we do then? Do we pay it? Do we say, all right, we're not going to work in Russia? And I'm sorry I've picked on Russia as a particular example. It's just one of many. What do we do when we're working with state-owned entities? And that's another major issue. There isn't still fully an answer because you can't just say, well, I'm not going to work in a certain country. So maybe do we work through a third party? Do we work through another country? How do we do this? And that is what corruption and fraud looks like in the media space. And it is... The big thing at the moment is programmatic, and it's how do we measure what we're actually doing? How do we measure when we say we've bought this amount of ad space? How do we know that somebody's actually looked at it? How do we get the tech to keep up with what the rules say? So it starts to blur the line between bribery, corruption, and tech. And that's fascinating. They tend to get a lot of people who've come from regulated backgrounds to go and work in their industry because they don't want the next big scandal to be them. Um, So there have been some big fines. Um, China Olympics, BHP Bulletin decided to go on a spree of generosity to certain officials and sort of saying, oh, don't worry, of course we'll fund your trip to the US and we'll fund your wife coming over and your kids. By the way, that contract to build the Bird's Nest Stadium, yeah, we supply stuff, can we... That went on. And BHP, they're an Australian um, mining company, well, mining and um, logistics and building work. They got fined $25 million for it, $25 million. This is still rife as we speak. Um, we've got, I mean, well, I'm not even going to talk about phone hacking because the ethics of that, it's been done to death and I'll leave that out there. But all of this is stuff where we think, when we talk about media, it's how do we get our media? Where's it coming from? How do we guarantee people see it? How do we control it? That's going to be the growth area for corruption, I think. It's, It's quite crazy at the moment and not a lot of it is out in the public domain. It will be later on. But then we get to the really fun bit, because um, I've now decided to go off and work for a pharmaceutical company. Yes, I heard a few laughs at the back there. Thank you very much. Um, it's, uh, you know, just as one thinks it couldn't get any worse, off we go to pharma. So I'm interested to know, before I say anything, what are the impressions around the room of pharmaceuticals? Don't be shy. Don't be shy. We're all friends in here. It's okay. In the States, they're seen as owning the government. They have like onerous practices in terms of intellectual property. Yes. And they use the taxpayers' money to fund the development of their own drugs, which they then patent and then basically profit on, despite it being with public money in America anyway. They can change the price of important drugs at will and fund the profits come up. It's not yes. They target specific um, ailments, I guess, without regard to how it affects the whole person. So then they can. Other drugs that take care of the other 
This is pretty good. I was expecting to have like fruit thrown at me or something. I came ready to be told to get out. So um, this is quite positive. Um, so when I started in pharmaceuticals, again, in a compliance capacity, I went in with very mixed feelings. Really, really, really mixed. Like, yes, pharma is fantastic. It creates drugs that save people's lives. This is great. It's ridiculously expensive. I don't understand why a drug has to go from costing this to costing that. Don't they have any ethics? What on earth is going on? And I'm still undecided. I'll be honest, I'm still undecided. For a start, I have never worked in an industry with so many rules. I, wow, I thought oil and gas was bad. They have rules for everything. And then when they have rules for everything, there's a rule for that rule. I have never seen so many bits of paper in all my life. So... To sort of to bring out some of what you've said around the room, back in the bad old days, and to a degree still in the United States, I'm going to speak largely for the United Kingdom regime, though I do have a little bit of knowledge on the US regime. Back in the day, the relationship between the pharma companies and the doctors was quite a cosy one. It literally would be, hello, Dr. X, um, here are some samples. By the way, we've booked you and your wife a long weekend. Do you mind prescribing this to your patients? That was what happened. In They highly funded certain lifestyles of doctors, predominantly doctors, not necessarily the rest of the uh, medical profession. And this went on for years. And then you get cases of doctors over-prescribing. You get cases of doctors prescribing things that aren't necessarily right for the person, and all because the rep has come to them and taken them off for their long weekend, and that just was what it was. Now, more so in the UK, the government decided, look, this has got to stop right now, because what we're doing is harming patients. We can't be over-prescribing a job. We can't be prescribing people the wrong thing. So this has got to stop. So we now have the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industry Code of Conduct. It is lengthy. It has so many rules. It is unbelievable. But the core crux of what it does is stop this from happening. So, for example, right now, if I as a pharma rep wanted to take a doctor out, I can't. It's illegal. I cannot do it. If I wanted to sponsor an event where I get up and talk about the latest drug that's going to do X, Y, and Z. I can't. I can sponsor a group of doctors coming together to give me data on certain drugs. I can sponsor key opinion leaders talking about something. I can't promote it to you as a group of doctors. If I want to take a doctor for dinner, I can't do it. I can, however, if we've got an event going on and it runs into the evening, I can pay for dinner but then I'm only allowed to spend £70 per person. So no swanky dining anywhere. I can't pay for your rooms. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, can a pharmaceutical company um, sponsor an event where the medicine is not mentioned? For example, an event about cancer, can they do that? Yes. There are rules around it, and there are very, very strict rules around it, but... Something that, um, so, oh, there is a technical term for it, but exactly what you've just described, where the doctors will come together and talk about, I don't know, cancer and say, well, the statistics, the statistics are this, we're finding that I as a company can sponsor it with a but. That information is public, it's, it's a public record. I have to publish it on my website, it has to be free to the public. Everyone has to know about any transfer of value from a pharmaceutical company in any capacity to any medical professional. So it's really, really stringent. And on top of that, there are European rules. Um, I will pause for my momentary rant about Brexit because, um, oh boy, nobody knows what's going to happen. It's, it's the cliff edge. And given that the, um, 
the pharmaceutical regulatory uh, body for Europe is uh, in Canary Wharf right now, and I understand they have a 32-year lease on that very expensive building that they've paid for, and they're going to have to leave. And they're now debating where are we going to go, we're going to have to take all these staff, the companies here, now that the regulator isn't going to be here, are thinking, you know, do we need to go, what are we going to do with our staff? So... I guess my two cents on that is Brexit has ruined everything. And um, I'm, yeah, that's my opinion. I'm not talking for anybody else, by the way. But we need some, maybe a clearer guidance as to what we're going to do post-Brexit. And it doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. But off Brexit. <laughs> so that's what the rules state. And so my job within the pharmaceutical company is to ensure these rules are being adhered to, to also look after the bribery aspect and to ensure that we're not acting in a way that's inappropriate. So if I say GlaxoSmithKline and bribery, anyone? China? GlaxoSmithKline, a British company, decided to embark on a program of uh, better relationship building with doctors in China for a number of years. So again, we're funding lavish lifestyles, funding dinners, taking the spouses out, etc. The Chinese caught them. And if any of you are aware of how justice works in China, let's just say that some of the sentences are different to how we would apply sentences here. From what I understand, the death penalty is still an option if the level of bribery is serious enough. In this case, the gentleman didn't receive the death penalty. Um, he got a two-year suspended sentence and was deported. And he was the gentleman who was the head of the Chinese operations in GlaxoSmithKline. Now, it's an interesting one. I really actually i am glad we had the point from the lady at the back earlier about that if they do this deferred prosecution agreement and pay some money, doesn't that just silence the whole thing? What do you think happens to the reputation of the company when the world finds out they've been paying bribes? Depends on the company. Nothing, really. <laughs> it could be a massive loss of income because the consumer now is aware. Would anyone like to guess by what percentage GlaxoSmithKline's sales in China fell once they'd been convicted? 30. 50. 90. 60. 60%. 60 Chinese stopped buying from them. And, okay, it's GlaxoSmithKline. They're a massive pharmaceutical. That's a lot of money. It's a big cost to doing business, and it outweighed massively what they paid out in bribes. Massively. So it's not, well... It's not worth it. It's not something one should be looking to do because the fines and what you have to pay out and your loss of your reputation, reputation you've had for however many years, can be gone overnight. So it's something to consider. So things like gifts and hospitality. Pharma, really, really stringent. At the moment, if you receive any gift, the mandatory level to declare it is £20. That's it. You have to declare it. When I've been in oil and gas, well, I was working in Iraq, so it was $5 because it was Iraq. But other industries I've worked in, it's been £200. So if someone can give you a gift worth £200, you don't have to say anything. Farmer, absolutely not. It's, it's 20 quid, and you have to tell us what's going on. And they have monitoring for things that are going on repeatedly. And if you want to give a gift, you can't. You have to come to someone like me, and I'm going to sit and grill you for half an hour as to why you're doing it, what the purpose is, and say, here's a pen you can give somebody. By the way, that pen is not allowed to have any of our branding on it for any of our drugs. That's illegal as well under the code. So here's your blank pen. You may give this as a gift to that doctor. By the way, it's a biro, not a Mont Blanc or anything ridiculous. End of. It is exceptionally stringent. Now, we had an issue raised about pricing. And they can just change their pricing when they want, and it's all awful. 
Again, I'm going to speak to the UK regime because I can't speak as much to the US regime. Does anyone know how prices of drugs are set in the UK? The EU regulation. Sorry? There's an EU regulation here in there that sets for um, the percentage versus the generic and the name brand and how different there is. Coming down from that, so UK regulations or how the UK government goes about how do we get our drugs prices when we go to the chemist? There's a regulation scheme and the UK government and the, well it's a voluntary scheme but pretty much every pharma company is signed up to it. They go through long and protracted negotiations to figure out how they're going to set their prices. Now what isn't necessarily clear all the time is they don't actually negotiate on the price of the drugs. Don't, they don't negotiate on the price of the individual drugs. Would anyone like to hazard a guess as to what they negotiate on? Not a trick question by the way. They negotiate on the percentage growth that the company, the percentage profit growth that the company is allowed to make. So not the individual drugs, the profit that the company is allowed to make. And this is where it gets interesting because that means that potentially I might raise the price of a drug or I might negotiate a, a larger price for a particular drug. But it also means I'm always going to make a loss on something because I'm not allowed to make more money. So something that people don't always realise is that a pharmaceutical company is always going to make a loss on something. Now, whether that something is its biggest seller, whether it's something that you know about is another question altogether, but they're always going to make a loss on something. So another question. How much do we think it costs to get a drug from, I've had an idea about a drug, to it's on the market? Go on, just throw some numbers at me. Three hundred billion. Three hundred billion. No, it's. Um, I'll tell you the number in a moment. How many years do you think it takes to get a drug from? I've had an idea to it's on the market. Right. So twenty-five to thirty years. Six billion. Minimum. That's on a good day. What happens if that drug fails when you're testing it? You've just wiped off however much billion you've just put into that. So when we talk about drug pricing and we talk about these negotiations, we're also talking about however many billions the company has put into it before we've even got to there's a molecule and we're thinking about doing something with it. Now, in, again, I'm not going to speak to the US regime. It's more to the UK regime. You know, this is privately funded. So there is an issue here. How do we balance out the fact that this company spent billions of dollars on developing something and getting it wrong, by the way? Because it's something ridiculous, like one in, it's one in 10,000 molecules actually works. So we're talking serious money. How do we balance that against, the, against well, this is how much a drug costs? How do we value the time and the effort and the failure, etc., of getting this thing right? I don't know. The, I, I don't actually have an answer. It's still something I'm trying to figure out. But it's, it's a difficult one. And so one of my roles in this is to think about, okay, how do we make sure we're acting ethically? How do we make sure that as a company we're putting patients first? The company that I work for, it's in their constitution that we must be compliant and we must put patients first, which is not something I've seen in any of the other pharma companies, which is pretty cool. 
Um, it's, it's not an easy one. It really, really isn't an easy one. And obviously we've talked about GlaxoSmithKline and something tells me there'll be more. So we'll keep an eye out for it. Thank you.